Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 31 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome breakthrough propulsion physicist Mark Millis as my featured guest. Millis is best known for leading NASA's now-defunct Breakthrough Propulsion Physics program that explored advances in physics pertinent to faster-than-light interstellar flight. From there, he and colleagues compiled the first scholarly book on those ambitions, Frontiers of Propulsion Science, published by the AIAA in 2009. In 2010, Millis took early retirement from NASA to continue these revolutionary pursuits via his nonprofit Tau Zero Foundation. Then in October of 2019, just last year, Millis rejoined the Ohio Aerospace Institute to continue work on a NASA-funded breakthrough propulsion study. But today, we're going to talk about the prospects of making Star Trek real, how we get from chemical rockets to something that will take us to the stars in a reasonable time frame. Millis joins us from outside Cleveland, Ohio. Mark, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, first off, it's been 50-plus years since the last Saturn V rocket ferried Apollo astronauts to the moon and back. Why are we still using chemical propulsion in the 21st century? Well, for one thing, it works, and it's the cost of using it is going down, and there isn't an alternative. And maybe not in terms of performance, but in terms of getting it to be uh, less costly and more efficient, that seems to be getting better. And really, there are no easy alternatives. Nuclear propulsion, which would not be for Earth to orbit, but for interplanetary transfer, uh, that would be a step change, and the, the physics for that already exists. But anything like you might hope for in Star Trek or whatever is still in the realm of undiscovered physics. So are you encouraged, though, by uh, the uh, new generation of space entrepreneurs who are using more efficient means of accessing space? Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Um, and I wish them success and I'm really impressed uh, with that they share videos of those spacecraft landing back at some amazing uh, videos. But the other caveat on that is that it almost becomes that that is notion of going after what we know we can do kind of dominates and then the longer range stuff just kind of uh, falls off. So, you know, that's a, another aspect to it too. But I, I think it bodes well for the future that uh, other people rather than just national space programs are doing that. But it does appear that NASA is uh, reconsidering nuclear propulsion for a potential crewed mission to Mars. I forget the dollar amount, and I think it's been over a year, but yeah, NASA's beginning to look into what's called nuclear thermal propulsion, and that's where you have a, um, a fission reactor that just heats the propellant to uh, accelerate it. And even with something as conceptually simple as that, the performance gains that you get are, are pretty substantial. It's like a going from just chemical to even nuclear fission is a huge step change in performance and would make interplanetary flight uh, better. And I know that there's a lot of folks that are 
when they hear the word nuclear, they think, you know, how dangerous and stuff. And these things can be done safely. Uh, there were nuclear rocket engines being tested in the, um, the 60s. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, working on it carefully and getting all the bugs worked out. Um, but I think that would be, if, if that comes to pass, that will make a significant change of how much we can send to places like the moon and Mars. We do know that New Horizons was an, at least an incremental improvement on the spacecraft velocity. Well, the one that I do have is Juno, which was launched a couple of years after that. I think it achieved 73.6 kilometers per second, which was faster than uh, New Horizons, if I am remembering correctly. But so we have made uh, incremental increases in velocities from the 1970s when the Voyager spacecraft launched till recent, more recently with New Horizons and the Juno mission, NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. Yeah, um, from the 1977 Voyager, its maximum speed, I think, was 17 kilometers per second or something like that. Uh And Juno, in 2011, I think, made it up to 73 or 74 kilometers per second. So you're, you know, talking on the order of uh, four or five times um, faster over those several decades. So now you were the uh, head of NASA's Breakthrough Propulsion physics program based in at Glenn at NASA Glenn Research Center outside Cleveland that ran from 96 1996 to 2002 but you said that your work there continued on to 2009 is that correct uh, 2007 or 2009 because the, the the final wind down got a little bit ambiguous but what happened is that um, even after the funding had ended, and it wasn't just my project, it was um, all of the other propulsion research that was going on at the time, is that by then the management had seen that, oh, okay, you really can handle this topic in a constructive manner. And I made the pitch for, you know, if you let me keep working it on center overhead, I'll make sure we finish all the documentation so that none of the progress that we made is lost. And so they let me keep working on it. It was around 2007 through 2009 when Griffin was coming in that the idea of, you know, stopping all propulsion research uh, kind of came in. So that's that's really what brought it to a close then. And you're talking about uh, former NASA Administrator Michael Griffin. Yep. So uh, then essentially you uh, took early retirement from NASA but you continued your work uh, via the Tau uh, Zero Foundation. and But you told me, the interesting thing is you told me that uh, the culprit for, the, for ending the propulsion research was a congressional earmark to build a propulsion oh. research lab in Alabama. And you, and you note that building itself cost more than all the propulsion research funds put, to, put together. Hence, no more research. <laughs> Can you talk yeah, about something, that? Yeah, actually, and um, when the funding got cut, um, uh, 2002 was the last fiscal year. So in, when fiscal year 2003 came up and we weren't funding, uh, myself and the Marshall guy who handled the funding stuff went to D.C. to try and figure out, you know, what happened? Why was it cut? And we weren't getting any, you know, clear answer. And then when the final budget document came out, so this is in the the fiscal year 2003 um, budget document, there's a line in there about something to the effect of examples of damaging 
the damaging effect of congressional earmarks, where something along the lines of uh, propulsion or funding for a propulsion research lab led to the cancellation of all the research that such a lab would have gone to support or something like that. And, you know, when I read it there, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. And I knew exactly what building they were talking about. And so, you know, these things, congressional earmarks and shifting of funds, that just happens in the space industry. And what's the expression? Roll with the punches. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's what happened. And an earmark is simply uh, a specific uh, criteria for a piece of funding within a uh, within a congressional piece of legislation, a program. Yes. Okay. Uh, and the, and by the way, that. That wasn't the only earmark that I had to, to deal with. When I was doing the propulsion physics project, um, there was two earmarks to a firm in West Virginia whose uh, totals for one experiment exceeded the entire budget that I had for the seven years of the Breakthrough Propulsion Physics Project, which is really frustrating when you're trying to manage an entire uh, project with more than one research thing going on and several different experiments and then a congressional earmark to someone in West Virginia gets way more than all of that for one experiment. But we don't want to mislead the uh, listeners uh, because Marshall Space Flight Center, you mentioned Mar- somebody from Marshall just re- just now. Uh, Marshall Space Flight Center is doing propulsion research now again, aren't they? Yes, they are. All the, the propulsion research funds eventually came back, and not just uh, not just NASA Marshall, but NASA Glenn Research Center, NASA JPL, and they all have their uh, specific projects amongst them. And so the that propulsion research lab is being used usefully now and the um the ones that uh that i know of that were at glenn um you know they're they're still operational and in use again so uh after that cycle with the uh congressional earmark and then the the administration of uh griffin in there the research funding did come back and things are happening and you told me in forbes though that the we were talking about how to fund such long interstellar breakthrough for physics programs and you told me in force yeah. that the ideal u.s federal agencies to fund such a breakthrough propulsion project include nasa and the national science foundation and you said that the, yeah you told me that the wrong agencies to fund this includes the department of defense the dod and darpa the defense advanced research projects agency and the reason is you noted that the dod's and darpa's pitfalls Included limited public discourse, a selection process that favors jumping to conclusions, and a focus on the final product before understanding the operating principles that could lead to a final product. Yeah, well, I'm going to start with that that last one about uh, jumping to conclusions and aiming for a final product. The propulsion physics realm, we still don't know the applicable laws of nature that might give us these propulsion breakthroughs. So it's fundamental scientific research. And the kind of DARPA's realm is more appropriate for things that where the uh, success is pretty much imminent um, or where, you know, it's a matter of that last bit of funding to take something that's emerging as technology and getting it working. So they have a different maturity level that they're uh, aiming for for the work. Um, And not just DARPA, but also just something I've seen in the aerospace community, 
with research ambitions uh, to propulsion physics related things, I see kind of a a lottery ticket mentality that rather than investing in the small scientific steps to decipher na- the relevant nature in the context of um, spaceflight, uh, they're hoping to find that one big idea that will suddenly work. So you'll have someone come up with his EM drive or uh, some other thing like that, and a lot of people get excited about it and dive into it when the very principles and other stuff just haven't been done at all. Now, what is the and, EM drive? We heard a lot about that in the there were yeah. several news flaps about the EM drive over the over the last two or three years. Uh, tell us what that is and and whether or not you think it's a viable drive. It uh, originated in the United Kingdom. Um, Richard Shaw, I think, was the first one to uh, come up with it. And all it is is what, a, is what does EM stand for? First of all, electro. Magnetic. Okay. So even even its name is somewhat <laughs> general. But all you have is, okay, imagine a coffee can, and uh, you scrunch one end of it, so now it looks kind of like a cone. Uh-huh. Uh, so you have this kind of conical, I want to say cylinder, but then uh, I, I'm not sure what words to use to help the audience visualize it, but kind of a truncated cone. Uh-huh. And you bounce microwaves inside of it. Okay. And their claim is, is because there's more microwaves bouncing on the larger uh, one side than on the smaller front side, there's a net force. And that this net force is even bigger than a photon rocket. Now um, explain what you mean by a net force. You have a force that's both going forward and backward, but they're of different magnitudes. Like imagine you had two cars in a tug-of-war kind of thing, uh-huh. and one's tugging at it with 200 horsepower, and the other one's tugging at it with 50 horsepower. One is pulling harder than the other one. Right. And then be, so that's that was the, um, the general explanation behind this. But that just doesn't hold up for the... And they didn't have any equations to show physics why. You know, how would they get the type of thrust they were claiming? So it boiled down to, um, you know, they were doing these things experimentally, but the experiments were also fraught with a lot of ambiguities and things that could easily uh, go awry. As the years went by, the sensationalism increased a lot more than the fidelity of the experiments, which is the worst thing to happen. So you're con- um, so, so so to be clear, you're contending that this this whole idea originated in the UK, and then yep. uh, NASA itself. Uh, began researching EM drive. Yeah, it wasn't just NASA. It was a whole bunch of uh, folks. And and the NASA ones that I know of started as a researcher at the Houston Center, Johnson Center, who was doing it uh, kind of on the side in a small lab uh, using his own discretionary funding. Okay. Um, the other thing... I, before I forget, because uh, it's really important, there is a uh, research group in Dresden, Germany, led by Dr. Martin Timar, who is taking a more um, systematic and careful tact on testing these sort of claims. Uh-huh. And he has a funded program he calls the Space Drive Project, where he is experimentally testing these claims of breakthrough propulsion as well as trying to determine what unfinished physics or dangling unknowns in physics pertain and how would you study them in the context of propulsion. What's nice about that effort, 
they're going into it, he and his students and other professors, is, you know, this is really cool stuff if it would work. And they're also open-minded to that, you know, it might be a dead end. And their emphasis is on making sure their experiments, they know what the experiments are actually telling them, that they've ruled out spurious causes and, and other sort of things. So just to be clear again, the EM drive originated, the idea originated in the U.K., other institutions began uh, to garner interest in this. Uh, they began their own research. Uh, as you mentioned, there was a fellow uh, at Johnson Space Center, I don't have his name in front of me, who was using his own discretionary budget within NASA to research these, this EM drive. We got a lot of press. Uh, I think we actually I mentioned this to you in, an, uh, in a previous interview I did with you for Forbes, and you were a little bit dismissive of it. And so that's probably why I didn't pursue it as a story myself. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, but um, essentially, it's looking to create a net force based on uh, microwaves moving dynamically within a cylinder that somehow creates a, a, di- a dynamic uh, net force uh, for, for propulsion purposes in a breakthrough in a, in a breakthrough a propulsion sense. Is that, did I sum it up pretty correct? Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's pretty close, and the device looks more like a cone, cone. Okay. than a cylinder. But I mean, and the theoretical claims just don't have much meat to them at all, and, and, and or what, testability. And what are the, the theoretical claims? Let me just briefly. Well, they bound. Well, well, see, this is something that is uh, kind of frustrating, because even though the experimental data on the device was still kind of hit and miss, and their weren't really sure it was working, except for the believers. And I'll, I, mean, I should probably come back to what the distinguish is between a believer and an investigator. Uh-huh. But um, a lot of people started coming up, well, this is my theory on why that device works, even before the device has been confirmed to work, and it has still not been confirmed to work. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I, I quit following it a few years ago. Do you call the researcher's name at, at Johnson Space Center, the fellow who was Yeah, um, Sonny White. Sonny White, okay. So Sonny White was pursuing this, and do you do you know if he's still pursuing it? Is NASA still? Um, well, what happened? What happened to Sonny White is that he eventually left NASA and found a private sponsor. Um, and last year, they issued a solicitation for research related to this. I I have not really kept up with it, but what I do know is that he did ask for help from other NASA people to review the proposals they got. I have no idea whether or not they. Um, accepted anything for funding. I have no idea what sort of funding level uh, he was at. And I was relieved that, you know, he called in for help reviewing. And I was also relieved that they did a solicitation for other ideas rather than um, just supporting the the stuff that he had um, tested. With these sort of claims, if you can demonstrate more carefully what it is that led to a false positive, uh-huh. it will make it easier to, or, or to dismiss. And absence of that, it will probably still be bouncing around in people's uh, uh, hopeful list. But if this EM drive had been proven or will uh, could be proven, it would be a game changer, right? Yeah, it would be. Because it would mean that you could move a device without having to um, expel reaction mass. And I'm going to, for your viewers, explain what that is. If you fill up a balloon with air Uh and you let it go, 
you see the balloon going zooming across the room. So what's happening is all that air that you just put in the balloon and the energy from the tension of uh, that rubber is squeezing out the air. So as the air moves in one direction, it thrusts the balloon in the other direction. And that's something you can try at home. Okay. A rocket, it has all this propellant on board and you thrust all that out in one direction, which makes the rocket go in the other direction. And you need that propellant to push against um, where this thing, this uh, EM drive, if it had actually worked, uh -huh. it would mean that you could thrust without needing all that propellant. And so it would just mean that, well, how much energy do you have to spare as opposed to just carrying the mass of the propellant and the energy? Well, maybe I should put it this way, too. For interstellar flight, it becomes a big deal. For getting off the surface of the Earth, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Um, because with the rocket propellant, the farther or faster or more you want to carry, you have to carry more propellant. Right. And then you have to carry extra propellant because of the extra propellant, and it adds up literally exponentially. So if you didn't have to do the propellant, but you could still do the thrusting, you could go much farther and eventually get up to higher speed. So that's why it ends up being a, a huge breakthrough. And so the whole key to interstellar propulsion is the ability to travel with significant mass, but without having to have significant mass for any sort of propellant. So in a, in a non-propellant uh, propulsion system. So in other words, uh, where you don't have to carry propellant. Yeah, well, also I need to um, be fair to the existing technology or the technology and the development that can also produce thrust without a uh, having to carry around propellant and those are uh, solar cells and laser sails so now what know, about so what about ion what about ion propulsion that's a yeah okay ion propulsion is a different form of rocket and its advantage is is that it is much more propellant efficiency for how much you move in other words you don't need as much propellant to uh, move the spacecraft. The downside is that it doesn't have as much thrust, so you can't move anything big. And then you also need a power supply for it. Okay. Um, normal chemical rockets, the power is in the chemistry of the propellants. So you told me in Forbes that the Wright brothers did not succeed because they had the right device. They created the right device because of how they did their work. Systematic investigation on more than one method, open to learning by trial and error. Yeah. Well, um, this gets back to the difference between, you know, pursuing these ideas like lottery ticket ideas where you hope to have the right device and then test it and you come up with the ideas already made, or where you understand what problem you're trying to solve, break the problem down into digestible pieces, and you systematically, step-by-step, step, work through all those problems and sort it out. And from everything you learn, then eventually you can design a device that uses those principles. When it comes to these ambitions of space drives and either faster than light, um, there's so much physics that has not been done um, you know, to jump to try and engineer a device when you don't even ha understand the laws of nature, how to make it, is premature. But if you realize, okay, what are the important unknowns in physics where, we, where there's still discoveries that could be made that pertain to spaceflight, and start investigating those and see what you learn. And, and the 
reason to to try a whole bunch of different things is we don't know which one's going to work. You know, kind of explore and, and chip away at these things in, in smaller, more digestible pieces. Um, and from what is learned, hopefully lead you to something that um, you might eventually be able to engineer or decipher laws of physics that we have not yet come across. Uh, you told me in Forbes that even if Earth-based rocket engineers can fabricate space probes that could reach speeds approaching that of light, the probes themselves have a limited time span or lifespan. A probe traveling at light speed could only travel 200 light years into the galaxy before its hardware would fail completely. Okay, the longevity of space probes, and it really doesn't, I mean, okay, speed does matter if it hits dust, but even those are addressable problems. Uh Um, But the longevity of functioning electronic equipment in harsh environments with the radiation, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. uh, even two centuries is a rough guess. Um, I mean, Voyagers have been out there for, I think it's approaching five decades, um, way beyond their operational lifespan. They are still functioning, not completely, but they are, which that bodes well. But we haven't been making this sort of technology for long enough to see what is our ultimate limit of um, longevity. And so at the time, when talking to some other people who do spacecraft, and none of them wanted to be quoted on this, is, okay, you know, what do you really think we could ultimately do? And they say, eh, maybe probably two centuries. So that's where that came from. Uh-huh. Um, now, you make any spacecraft design, you want it to last as long as possible and be as reli- reliable as possible. And so, you know, the research is always ongoing about how to make those things better. But how do we approach knowing our ultimate longevity limit? Um, I I don't know anyone that's uh, doing that at all or what that answers. So right now, two centuries is kind of like the off the cuff, well, I think that's it, kind of estimate, but we don't know. And, And we, from the evidence of the Voyagers, you know, a half century? Yeah, okay, that seems really doable. And, but, um, and what's amazing about the Voyagers, though, I mean, to give NASA credit, is that these things, uh, you know, we're using 1970s technology. The technology has just been revolutionized, with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, since the 70s. So, so, you know, if we launch these things today, maybe they would easily last 100 years, you know? So, uh, yeah, and even using and chemical the, well, that propulsion. That is one thing. I mean, the 100-year marker even though I don't know if you could find anyone to commit to it, that does not sound unreasonable. No, no. You know, no. yeah, agree. so. Anyway, so uh, let's talk now about the potential for faster-than-light travel for a full-scaled okay. crewed mission and or a warp drive technology. How should we be, we be researching this issue? You mentioned in the pre-interview that you advocate a way at, of chipping away at unknowns in physics rather than just trying to investigate every kind of harebrained idea that comes <laughs> come, comes across the transom. Uh, please exp- explain what you're talking about there. Yeah, and this is a, a perfect example for that. Um, unlike space drives, there's actually uh, theories out there for fast and light flight that are anchored in established uh, physics, even though they're quite rightly debatable. Um, there's the traversal wormholes in the um, Alcubierre warp drive. 
Um, the equations can tell you how much energy you would need and what type of energy you would need to make these things happen. Debate on whether or not it be controlled or turned on and off um, and whether or not the energy exists. But with all those questions that come forth from looking at the equations, it's like, well, okay, let's look at this negative energy and see are there examples in nature and can we um, engineer these sort of things. So that's kind of one level of pursuit. Uh, questions well, you, but, about but just to interrupt you there. You you mentioned uh, that that all the FTL theories based on general rel- relativity use this ability, the the ability to distort space time. Uh, no, yeah, uh, and uh, to create shortcuts like wormholes or to move sections of space time faster than objects inside space time can move, which is a warp drive. And you mentioned this warp drive notion was first published in 1994 by Mexican theoretical physicist Miguel Alcubierre, who you just mentioned, parenthetically. And inferences from the expansion right after the Big Bang suggest that space-time can indeed expand faster than objects within the space-time can move. Yes. So how would you how do you define a warp drive for the uninitiated? Okay, um, I'll make an analogy. Imagine you have a piece of paper, and that's space-time, uh-huh. and that there's a speed limit for how fast your pencil can move across that paper. Okay, that's Einstein's uh, special relativity, you know, the light speed limit. But then there's a the question, well, how fast can you move the piece of paper itself? Uh-huh. Um, and that's where the warp drives and the wormholes come on. The warp drive is moving a bubble of space-time, um, and also carrying then its contents. So when it comes to the um, Alcubierre warp drive, instead of moving something through space-time, you're moving a chunk of space-time itself. And as you alluded to, from evidence of the expansion of the beginning of the universe, space-time can move faster than, than things can move through space-time. Uh-huh. Um, I do not know what that upper limit is. A colleague once calculated that, but I'm not sure how much... Uh, stock to put in some of these things that are still evolving physics. Right. But to get back to your point about, well, what would we investigate? Well, that would be one thing is that are there examples of negative energy in nature? And if there are, um, can we engineer devices to create them? And also where they're not contained and And again, what is, without going what is negative energy? It's needed to expand space-time. Ah, okay. Okay, and for the wormholes, it's needed to keep the throats from collapsing as objects uh, go through them. I guess one way to... It's needed to get... um, The the throats? What did you say? The throats? Yeah, the throat of a wormhole. Ah, okay. Um, From the original work on traversable wormholes is that when you... Ask what's going to happen if you actually put a mass through the throat. It's called the throat. Okay. Um, the reaction is is that the throat will collapse. And to keep that from happening, you have to have negative energy to keep the throat open while a mass goes in. And this is all uh, by the equations um, for these things. So I guess another way to explain negative energy, if... A lot of your audience has probably seen those uh, space-time diagrams where you have a mass and how the space is curved down and things bend when they go around it. Uh Well, 
if you want to imagine negative energy, instead of bending it downward, it would bend it in the opposite direction, upward, which, I mean, it's, it's something, using these analogies kind of makes me cringe because I know that even though the visual analogy is easy to understand, it's not a good match for the physics, but I'm at, for, uh, at, a, at a loss for how else to explain it. So you need something that behaves, say, gravitationally opposite than normal mass, um, okay. Okay. is I guess one way of, of saying it. So with the warp drives, you have, the way I've heard it explained is you have um, collapsing space-time in front and expanding space-time in back, and then that moves the bubble in the wormhole by creating a, I believe it is a ring of negative mass, you can create a shortcut to another region of space-time. And yeah. uh, Caltech uh, professor, theoretical astrophysicist uh, Kip Thorne was the first to uh, come up with this idea that wormholes could be passages into other regions of space-time, uh, other regions of, uni- of, uh, of the cosmos or our universe as we know it. I believe so, and I believe it was, was it 1988? And the other cute story is that, um, two things with that, is they published the paper... Um, I forget the exact title, uh, something about traversable wormholes, and then as a student exercise to try and um, water down the sensationalism of the title. And also he did that investigation (laughs) um, for Carl Sagan, who asked, can you come up with something more plausible to help me with my book, Contact? Um, Oh, okay. He was also an advisor on the film Interstellar. uh, Which is entirely appropriate. So wormholes remain totally theoretical at this point. Yep, as do warp drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and so and what, if we were going, if we, if is there a way that uh, that astronomers could look for the signatures of a wormhole elsewhere in the universe? Yes, and as a matter of fact, that was uh, devised, I believe, in 1994, and um, there was a meeting at JPL to talk about these things and. Robert Forward and Matt Visser, Jeff Landis, and John Kramer wrote a paper about, well, if there are uh, traversal wormholes, what would they look like? And they would have gravitational lensing that would be the opposite of a black hole. And um, they published a paper, um, and that signature, I believe was passed along to astronomers for something to keep your eye out for. Uh-huh. And nothing like that has been observed. But um, if you did have a wormhole and it passed in front of your uh, telescopic view and there was other masses or other light sources behind it where you could see what kind of gra- gravitational lensing, it should have a certain detectable signature. Um, and this was, I think, 1994 when that came out. But again, the wormholes have nothing to do with black holes. Correct. You mentioned in the uh, pre-interview that one hazard of doing this kind of -of out-of-the-box research is that you yourself become bombarded by people with crazy propulsion ideas that actually hindered your work. Yeah. um, the, The shorthand we used was lunatic fringe. 
and the distinguishing characters. And I even talked to a uh, psychiatrist or psychologist about this because I, I didn't know how to, to deal with the situation. And he advised that if they show delusions of grandeur or paranoia, it's best just to not even deal with them. But someone with a PhD, but his job was a grocery store bagger, he would mail me pieces of cardboard wrapped either with clear tape or black electrical tape, <laughs> along with instructions for that if I move them a certain way in front of my face, I can induce a, a wormhole. Oh, um, you know, so that's the, the kind of things that uh, I would... Yeah, way so, more than. So that means that every time I, you know, somebody takes the trash out, they may be inducing a wormhole. How about that? Yeah, well, every time they're well, doing the there's recycle. the proverbial um, uh, clothes dryer that uh, the, that spinning electrically charged cylinder um, transports your socks into a different uh, universe. Um, oh yeah. goodness. And and, yeah. and so, so it, yeah. and so you you regularly came across. I mean, you regularly had people contact you. With these kinds of <laughs> strange ideas, while while you were doing yes. this research, and okay. it's not so much that their ideas were troublesome, but it was the the delusions of grandeur and that they, you know, uh, well, okay, I should be uh, clear to make a distinction. We would also have amateurs approach us about um, you know some very common misconceptions using vibrational devices and stuff like that. And, you know, they say, I think I have a breakthrough here. Uh, can you, you know, evaluate it? That's a completely different approach. Right. In which case, you, you know, if they're willing to investigate it and find out that it might be a potential dead end and are willing to go through the steps of what you need to, to do proof. Okay, now that's a good thing. Right. And it was, I mean, they took a lot of time and, you know, they, it, was, it was difficult to deal with them in a way that you kept things constructive, but a totally different uh, class than the ones that were absolutely convinced that their idea is wonderful and would get angry if you uh, brushed them off at all and okay. were not at all willing to submit their ideas for scrutiny, even though they would be asking you to look at them. You don't mind people who, who may have... Uh you know, some sort of research that they've done on their own that could be, could offer a contribution if they are willing to have it vetted. But the people to watch out for are those who, who are beyond reproach, who don't want their work vetted. Right. And it's a surprising number of those and how painful it is to deal with them. So what about the mainstream institutions like the space institutes, like, uh, the agencies, the European Space Agency, are they doing breakthrough propulsion research? Uh, the Japanese, they Russians, for, Chinese? Okay, ESA uh, for a short time years ago did, and as a matter of fact, the person who was working that was the same Martin Timar that later settled in Dresden and started a space drive project. Uh -huh. I don't think that the ESA is doing anything along those lines now. China had published a lot of things about this EM drive thing. But when I looked at their stuff, I was like, this doesn't look like serious research. Russia, there was a, I don't know if you remember the whole gravitational shield of Podkletnov from, that was also, I think, in the 90s. Um, I do not know if there are any organized research projects along these lines at all anymore. The only one that I know that is doing this in a systematic manner 
and with the impartiality being equally open to discovering something as disproving it are the folks in Dresden. I know that folks in America wanted to possibly start something along similar lines, but there is no, uh, there isn't enough interest or f- funding for these things in the U.S. that I'm aware of. I've noticed that there is kind of an aversion among the mainstream science community to the idea of uh, faster-than-light travel or even travel at relativistic speeds, approaching the speed of light. Uh, Have you noticed the same thing? Yeah, in in large part. And and actually, um, there's a, a lot of good reason for that. Well, one, there's no funding in it. But two, you know, we talked before about the, the lunatic fringe people and how if you are doing this sort of provocative stuff, they just kind of seek you out and they're unpleasant to deal with. And, you know, just not wanting to even remotely invite that one. Another point that was brought up in discussing these things, which I can totally see and I can expand on, but the phrase was is that having an application, meaning a desired outcome of spaceflight, And the phrase that uh, the researcher used was that it taints the purity of the research. And what he meant is that it creates a conflict of interest that might bias your impartiality, which is a totally valid point. Of course, I've definitely seen physicists get caught up and lose their impartiality with even uh, pure research questions. So that would mean that if you wanted to explore these ideas, you would have to have funding which there isn't much. You would have to have some buffer from the lunatic fringe, which I'm not even sure what to say about that. And you would have to have a way where you could do it with your colleagues, knew that you were being impartial and open to investigate these things, either both positive and negative without bias. And achieving all those things, it's just easier for your typical physicist, I mean, there's plenty of other physics challenges to go look for that you can earn a living for without getting mired in these um, messier challenges. Right. You told me in Forbes that you don't know for certain if we will ever achieve faster-than-light travel technology, but that you think that control over inertial and gravitational forces might happen before the end of the century, and therefore faster-than-light travel might be achieved between the years 2300 and 3000. Now, what do you mean by inertial and gravitational forces in this regard? Okay, when we were talking uh, a space drive before of somehow pushing against space-time, which is a term that I use very loosely, Uh um, that kind of fall in that category. Uh, A lot of people uh, understand the concept of inertia, that your mass, um, you have to push on it to get it, up to speed and you have to push on it to slow it down. I mean, when you brake in your car or accelerate, but it's not just the property of the mass. It's a relationship between that mass and space time. So what it is in that connection and could you modify that? And inertia and gravitation are different flavors of the same phenomenon, I guess is, is one way to say it. So investigating those sort of things And the reason why I put those with a higher probability of uh, success isn't because there are great ideas on the horizon, but that the amount of energy it would take, if you had a physics where you could interact with an inertial frame in a certain way, and and I'm being very loose with the, the language for ease of comparison, so you could 
push off space time. Uh-huh. In principle, that requires a lot less energy than the warping of space time. Uh, I'll, I'll make an analogy. Let's assume you had a landscape and you wanted to move the vehicle from point A to point B. Um, the space drive or the inertial frames or the modifying gravity ideas are akin to trying to find some way to get tires to push against that landscape and get some sort of traction, um, in which case, you know, that's one way of doing it. The general relativity versions, the warp drives and the wormholes, is you completely reshape the landscape to create a downhill so your car rolls passively down this. You know, you've totally reshaped space-time, which is a completely different realm of how much energy you need to do that. And as far as those time frame estimates, I think the way I came up with those, and the audience should know that these are very off the cuff, is that when you advance things in the scientific method and then technology, you know, each step tends to take a certain number of years before you can move on to the next one. And if we were to have the viable seeds of new discoveries coming and you fast forward, well, how long would it take realizing now we have barely anything along those lines? You know, we know that the physics of inertial frames, the physics of the coupling between the fundamental forces, um, you know, all those are fair game to look at in the context of propulsion. But if you had the seeds of something workable and it would be at the very early stages of physics, the time it would take to go through those to advance them and turn them into hardware, um, if it was completely successful, would probably take about that amount of time. But uh, in principle, at least, would not require enormous amounts of energy, where the warp drives and the um, wormholes do require um, enormous amounts of energy. I think the first time that you and I uh, had contact, I remember I was living in Paris and I called you <laughs> uh, from the, the back garden of the gym. It was a beautiful uh, summer day, and you were in Cleveland. And um, we talked about zero-point energy, if I re- yeah. remember correctly, and the idea that there exists in space-time, the fabric of space-time itself on a quantum level, this energy that, ha- that is potentially harnessable for interstellar propulsion. In other words, that would solve the mass problem. Of of of, a, of having to carry propellant because you could just har- harvest this zero point energy in space time itself or from space time itself. Yeah, um, and that's another one of these uh, candidate unknowns in physics to investigate. Now, quantum energy itself is something that's fairly well established in the the physics. The debate is well, how much energy is really there that's accessible. And if it was accessible, what would be the consequences? And it wouldn't be like a free lunch sort of thing. There's been papers that demonstrate that in principle you could make a battery that um, where you would tap this quantum vacuum energy to do a little bit of work. But in order to recharge it, you'd have to put more energy back into the system. So the idea of the quantum vacuum being yet another natural phenomenon to study more in depth for its relation to flows of energy, um, the effects of nearby masses, all that's, you know, in that category of uh, small things you could chip away at to hopefully learn useful things. Something important that I I need to throw in there. Uh, Lawrence Krauss and I 
had a question about this. Actually, he asked me when I was doing my master's thesis, and he said, well, with these sort of things, why not just sit back and wait for physics to discover these things in the course of doing their, well, I'll use the word pure research, and as opposed to, you know, trying the context of the the propulsion goal, um, which might uh, take things. And the answer I gave there is that in the first step of the scientific method, when you define the problem and how you're looking at things, um, thereafter sets a certain context of how you look at the remaining unknowns of physics and how you go about investigating them. And it provides you yet another perspective of possibly solving um, remaining physics unknowns. Now, whether or not the breakthroughs come to pass, that's a completely different uh, situation. It gives you another way to attack the problem, another perspective that otherwise might have been overlooked. And if done with that impartial rigor, it could be as useful uh, a tactic as um, you know string theory or or whatever. Okay, but and just to be clear, the zero point energy which I mentioned would exist in the quantum foam of space time itself, uh, which is completely theoretical. If I if I'm not incorrect, at, on a very you know much of a quantum sub subatomic level. But the good thing about it is that it would be if you, if you could learn to harness this energy it would be accessible in the interplanetary space in in uh, interstellar space wherever right yeah well the 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 weak point right now is whether or not it would be accessible because it's the lowest state of energy so extracting it out in principle you need to get lower than that that's one argument but the good news it's not just a theoretical entity there's something called the casmer effect um, where a couple of metal plates are uh, held up close to each other, and this quantum vacuum will push the plates together. And I, I could go on for several minutes trying to explain that, but for the sake of uh, the point is that there are physical, experimentally verified effects that are attributed to the quantum vacuum and that match the theories. There are debates about, well, how much of this energy is really there and how might it be accessible, and what's really going on with the physics. So, And could you harness is, it? And the, 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 the $64,000 question is, could you harness it on a scale that would enable the energy to power a, a full-scale interstellar spacecraft? Right now, there is no known scheme to, um, to do that. That notion, and exploring it in the piecemeal impartial fashion that I advocate is a completely fair game question. Right. But the the prospects now it's like I have no idea. And, and just everything to, that's been everything that's uh been experimentally tested is extremely extremely weak, but it's not just a theory. It's um a So it has it has the, Cas effects. the Casimir effect that where these two metal plates can be seen if they get uh, close enough on the small on the smallest scales, they seem to attract each other, and this is due to the Casimir effect, which is yeah. which is a byproduct of uh, what we would think uh, uh, of the energy in the quantum foam of space time itself. It is it. Matter of fact, the theories to predict what those forces are are based on um, the uh, quantum vacuum energy hypotheses. But the 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 question is how how do we harness it? And if is there enough of it to make it a viable option? And and that is a huge unknown. 
so what about the ultimate speed limit for some sort of warp drive? And you noted to me in a uh, in an email, or perhaps it was in a Forbes article, that according to research physicist Eric W. Davis, the top speed inferred from quantum physics is about a thousand times light speed. So in other words, a thousand times the speed of light, which would mean what uh, if you were looking at a planetary system a thousand light years away, you'd be able to get there if you could achieve such speeds in in one light year. Yeah, in in one year. And I vaguely remember uh, that work. I don't know if it is something he calculated himself or if that's something that's more widely established. That I I do not know. But, uh, and interested readers can go look that up. I have... um, I do not remember how that was done or the degree to which that might be a complete statement. And then, you know, there's a whole other uh, 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that is unless we're just going to send interstellar probes, if we really want to send a crewed mission on an interstellar flight, we still haven't worked out a lot of the issues related to such long-duration space flights would uh, affect humans, the, the cosmic radiation the psychological effects, et cetera. And that's a, that's a whole nother podcast. I did want to mention it in case uh, the listener wondered, you know, what about that? Uh, but you did yeah. kind of uh, parenthetically mention to me that uh, some of these uh, issues related to how humans would survive such journeys possibly could be solved in research related to the propulsion itself. Well, here's, a, here's an easy way. Imagine your favorite uh, science fiction movie where magically on board their spacecraft, they have synthetic gravity. People can walk on the floors like normal, no matter what the spacecraft is doing. Right. That ability, I mean, that would be a profound breakthrough. That means you're creating forces in space-time locally using some technology. Well, in principle, if you just turn that um, sideways and put it on the um, outside of your spacecraft, you've got propulsion. You know, that's the the same sort of uh, ideas of trying to induce artificial gravitational fields or change inertial effects or that sort of thing. If you can do it outside your spacecraft, then in principle you can do it inside your spacecraft or vice versa. So if you did have a magical space drive that can induce, say, a 1G, 1G acceleration field outside the spacecraft, then why not also put one on the inside of the spacecraft so your crew can walk around normally? Um, I mean, th- now these are at kind of the level of science fiction goal in identifying um, ambitions as opposed to something more rigorous. But, you know, in, in principle, if you've got that kind of technology, you can use it for more than one application. Why isn't this whole issue? of interstellar travel, either by robotics or by a crewed uh, missions uh, with spacecraft. Why isn't this more of a national or international priority? You're, you're asking me to figure out the mentality <laughs> of the rest of the world. Yeah, right. And, and, no, there, um, there is and, no, there is and, no and, wrong and Clearly, answer. with as many conspiracy things that have been believed, that I'm, I'm totally uh, mind-boggled. But... You know, making sure that our own uh, planet remains habitable is, is rather a big deal. And the idea of wanting to, you know, have a, a backup on Earth 2 or whatever um, certainly is important. But the amount of work that we have to do, the number of 
years or centuries that might take to create that technology and then assuming, well, could we find another Earth and could we actually live there? I mean, those are huge unknowns. I guess when I look at these sort of things, I don't look at, at um, you know, should we do a lot on everything or everyone get behind the same goal? It's more like, well, okay, kind of uh, like a portfolio. You know, definitely put a, a lot of emphasis on making sure that we don't kill ourselves on this planet, uh, which is good. But, you know, maybe a little bit on exploring some of the more ambitious things and not just on and, – and there's – oh, yes. Um, when it comes to current commercial spaceflight, the idea of treating space advances as a business concept that has a place now but – not necessarily you would use that same mentality for the propulsion physics stuff. For the business, it makes perfect sense to wait until something's near fruition before investing. If you did that with everything, you wouldn't make any pioneering things. I mean, when uh, Tsiolkovsky came up with the rocket equation, there was not an investor waiting to pounce on it. <laughs> so for the, you know, the longer range science and exploration things, you know, to put that in terms of a modest discretionary thing, you know, just looking at it while the other and, – and using not business tactics of trying to make a profit or come up with a quick return, but of the let's make sure we understand Mother Nature accurately and in a way that's useful. You know, those are two different ways of doing um, progress and two different types of challenges. And so that each of these different challenges, the making sure we don't kill ourselves and potentially figuring out how to reach another habitable planet, those are totally different types of work. And each, I think, merit sponsorship to some degree. And with the near-term ones, obviously taking a, a higher priority. What about if we just had an institute? You've gone back to your Ohio Aerospace Institute and doing, I assume, your own work, which probably doesn't always involve work on interstellar propulsion. But let's say we had a dedicated institute that some billionaire you know, gave just $200 million a year for a nonprofit to hire 20 or 25 people. They'd sit in, you know, maybe it'd be a virtual institute, and they'd sit around uh, in front of computers doing computer simulations or whatever with maybe some modest uh, laboratory work. And they did it, and this was funded consistently for the next 25 years or the next 50 years. What kind of progress do you think we could make? Just chipping away at the physics, as you as you mentioned earlier. Well, funny you should ask that, because I was asked that if I were to restart research in this, what would it take and how long and what would be that sweet spot of dollars? Because if you also throw in too many dollars, you just bring out the, the sharks for the funding that aren't necessarily the useful service providers. So the tactic was, and, and to set what the dollar amount and the timing was, uh -huh. is to uh, do another a call for proposals for a variety of ideas and where each of the, the increments of work were chipping away at some relevant unknown, so short duration, and then just repeat that cycle every other year to see as you explore these unfinished areas of physics, are you... Uh, discovering anything that might be relevant for the propulsion goals and you know setting the context for propulsion goals but doing research where the findings are trustworthy whether they give hopeful or dismissive results and when coming up with what it would take to pull that off it ends up being you know on the order of three to five million a year uh, for 
uh, on the order of seven years. And the reason why there's a cutoff to it is to reach a point where you look back and reassess, okay, are we far enough along to where we can really chip away meaningfully at this with trying to be open to the possibility, well, it might be early. And if it turns out that we're making good progress, well, you can keep extending it on, but that at least seven years would be needed, you know, at least three uh, research cycles to see if there is fruitful ground and meaningful progress can be made. So that was kind of, that would be, you know, as I look at it, sort of the ideal situation. And then there would be review workshops, review boards, and all that sort of stuff. So for just the breakthrough propulsion physics stuff, three to five million a year for seven years would actually make a huge difference to see if we've got some really promising things that could be amplified later. Yeah. Do you think that technology that could take us to the stars already exists in someone's lab or in someone's calculations presently here on Earth, but we just haven't appreciated it or recognized it yet? No, I doubt that. The other thing that becomes obvious, especially when you know the, using the lone inventor sort of things, is that really making progress on anything, you can use the Wright brothers as analogy and even others, is it takes more than one brain to sort out things with various niche skills combining. I don't think anything like that is really going on yet. Now, to also say, are there perhaps the seeds of useful physical effects and stuff like that somehow percolating out that might eventually go on that maybe i i I really don't know Uh, what i do know is that if we're not looking we're not going to find anything even if these breakthroughs turn out to be impossible to achieve we're going to learn a lot more in the process of looking for them than just sitting and waxing pedantic and do you think uh, that there are currently galactic civilizations already out there cruising the cosmos? I don't know. When I did my own estimate of like the the Drake equation for how many civilizations might be within our own galaxy, and I put in my numbers, I only get about 10 civilizations. And our galaxy is huge. And for one of those 10 to have achieved interstellar flight, that seems, you know, a bit hard to... Um, a fathom, but you know, this is me making such a huge guess on so little information amid a rather large universe. So I guess you know, when it comes down to it, is a question like that: is is it worth trying to become something like that? In which case, it's like, yeah, sure, it's worth trying. Whether or not we might stumble upon anyone, I don't know. We won't know unless we look and also start going out and trying. Mark, uh, do you have a way that listeners uh, can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Um, I have a Twitter account that I have. It's just my name, Mark Millis, and my first name is with a C, not a K. But because of the deluge of email and a lot of lunatic fringe stuff and things like that, I've gotten... I would really rather not. But if there are professional inquiries, you can use the old-fashioned send a letter to the Ohio Aerospace Institute because yeah, it's really hard to get work done when you got lots of people emailing you wanting to bend your ear about their pet propulsion idea. 
As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Mark Millis, thanks for helping us better understand our prospects for interstellar propulsion. Thank you for asking. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>